want to say uh, welcome back. I'm glad some of you are back after a couple of weeks in Ecclesiastes. I mean, it's this existentialism, right? In chapter 2 and verse 17, he says, I looked at life and what I hated all of life. All, everything I see under the sun is vanity. It's chasing after the wind. There's this existentialism that we have to put up with. It baffles and befuddles and bewilders us. It, at, at points in this uh, book of 12 chapters, it, it shocks us and maybe even offends us and leaves us wondering why God did you put this in here. I've been worried about some of you with this vanity of vanities. It's mentioned, you've heard me say 38 times in 12 chapters, all is meaningless. And I've had this vision. I've pictured some of you in my head. You've been at your house, on your couch, in your drawers, covered in empty Dorito crumbs and beer cans and yelling at your dog. It don't matter. It don't matter. And that sweet, innocent dog is looking back at you saying, I just want to go for a walk. Uh, I'm happy just being with you, converting food into waste. I'm not like you looking for great meaning in life. Just let me be with you. And then that dog looks at you in your pathetic state and says, well, maybe not. Maybe I need to rethink everything as well. Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 3. Let's look at it. Uh, If you have a device or Bible in front of you, that would be great. If not, we'll look up on the screen. We're going to look at verses 1 to 8. Very poetic. Now, if you're my age and older, you'll know that this comes... This passage of scripture, I'm looking at Bob Pennybaker and John Maxwell and some folks, Stan Troy, Gary Hawkins, Charles Water. I'm just naming old people. That's what I'm doing now at this point. I mean, you, you, guys are, you guys are ducking and like looking for, you drop something like, right? Okay, I'm just naming old people. But guys that age and my age even know that in 1965, wasn't born just yet, but in 1965, the birds, right? Remember the rock band, the birds made this passage of scripture very popular. Turn, turn, turn. And for the younger crowd, Tom Hanks as Forrest Gump in the, uh, in the movie, in the 1994 movie, uh, brought this back. This a song by the birds was in that movie. Y'all remember that? Several more of you are shaking your head. Here we go. All that as a precursor. Unnecessary if you ask me, but here we go. For everything, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Um, there's a literary word, let's put that up there, it starts with, a, with an M, it's kind of a fancy word, it's uh, marasmus, that's a S is pronounced as a Z, marasmus, even some of the more astute English majors may not recognize this, it's a literary device that's really fallen out of, of usage um, in our day, but it means um, a repetition of polar extremes. And Solomon, the shrewd observer of life that he is, the wisest man that has lived, he said, he's getting us to accept the polar extremes and everything in between. He's saying that under the sun, there's a time for every human action and every human emotion. He employs this literary device. It's used in Shakespeare times and in Christian Reformation period, but not so much today. Embrace all of life. Are are you willing to? Are you willing to, to take Take it all. We are many times like the little kid in the Norman Rockwell painting. We're just kind of peeping through uh, that hole looking at the parade and we don't see it all. And have you noticed this? If you don't see it all, you don't understand it all. But God has the big view. He's 
up high. He's got... He's got the view that he can see it all. And, and I think Solomon is saying to us, as hard as it seems to some of you who uh, aren't very reformed in your theology, that God is providential. He's not just allocating these things. He's made allotment for them. Timing, have you noticed, is, is everything. You agree? You, you've heard that. You've probably used that. The difference between a good joke and a bad joke uh, a lot of times is timing. Uh, you don't want to go, they say, to the grocery store when you're hungry. You don't want to ask your boss for a raise when he's angry. That juicy hamburger that you just flap, uh, slap down on the grill, uh, it's going to be raw meat if you cook it too little. It'll be a lump of coal if you cook it too long. Uh, there's a time when you uh, need to buy a stock or sell a stock with your portfolio. Uh, when it comes to medicine, early detection oftentimes means effective treatment. When it comes to taking medication, some of you are professionals at this. You know that if you skip doses, uh, that medicine will lose its healing properties. If you take extra doses, uh, it could kill you or seriously harm you. Uh, Kenny Rogers said you need to know when to hold them and when to fold them, when to walk away, right? I mean, there's a, there's, timing is everything. But Solomon is not just saying that. He's saying that time, uh, that there is a, a time for everything. Okay, do you get that? There's a, there's a time for everything. Now, uh, when you read that, are you like me? At first blush, you say, man, that, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Now, uh, many of you are regular churchgoers, and I'm uh, excited to say that at Fondra, we've got several folks who come who um, don't claim Christianity as their faith. They're seeking. Uh, they're, they're just here to listen, maybe to learn, to consider the great uh, issues of life. But if you're a person of faith, you, you first read that, a Christian, and, and, and you say, hey, I'm, I'm down with that. I, you might even have it inscribed on a plaque or the entryway of your home or something like that. It's just beautiful poetry, isn't it? You read that, and I agree with the birds. I agree with Solomon. Man, turn, turn, turn. There's a, there's a season for everything. But yet I look at some of it, and I say, really? I mean, is there a time for all of this? Did God ordain? Uh, we know he allows it because of human freedom. We won't get into that, of course, but does he ordain it? Does he allow the allotment for it? What does he cause? What, what, what does he himself, when he pushes the wind and speaks the word, what comes directly from the hand of God? A time for everything. Man, I want a time. I want a time for laughter, don't you? I mean, I, I, I want to laugh. How many of you, you just want to laugh? I remember there was a, a very tense day here just a, a several weeks ago, and we were right here, and Jeff Hightower can uh, confer that this story actually happened, but we're standing right over there, and there's a couple of construction workers, and we were just, they had worked a hard day, and we probably had worked a semi-hard day, and we were just kind of talking, and, and one of the workers, a guy that's done a lot of the electrical work, big guy, I mean six seven, bearded guy, just chiseled, like a guy you just... Be careful talking to the guy, right? He could crush me like a ripe grape. And I, I, he had a, this amazing motorcycle. I don't know a lot about motorcycles. Pastor Ty of Woodland Hills knows a lot about motorcycles. But I asked this man, I said, man, can I borrow your motorcycle? And he looked at me and he paused. And he pulled up his britches. He goes, well, that's kind of like asking, can I borrow your wife? <laughs> and Susan was standing next to Jeff. And I said, well, can my wife borrow your motorcycle? You know, I like to laugh, and I, I don't want to weep. I, I want laughter, not weeping. I want to laugh until I weep, right? Isn't that the, that's the way to go? I want a lot of laughter and a, a little bit of dancing. And I say a little bit of dancing because we got a lot of Baptists and Presbyterians in the room, right? Just, just a little bit of dancing. But Solomon says there is a time for everything. 
And I know nobody wants to eat flour. Everybody wants to eat cake. But nobody eats a cake without flour. And I'm asking you this morning to consider the idea that these things, some of what we want and some that we don't, can intermingle on God's terms and listen for the word in his timing. And it can make something beautiful of your life. And this is the moment where some of you furrow your brow and put your arms up like this. And you say, Robert, you don't know where I'm at. And I don't pretend to. But I've lived a number of years myself. And I pastor this church and I know what a a number of you are going through. And I want to ask you this morning to open up your heart and your mind to the fact that God can make everything beautiful in its season. And there are seasons. Do you know this? If nobody's ever told you, a great way to keep your sanity in life, a great way to have a beautiful God perspective on everything is to realize that life is not some linear path from the cradle to the grave. That days aren't just like raindrops that pop you like pellets in a monotonous way, but there are seasons of life and to understand your life. I know that inherently many of us do that. You've probably witnessed someone going through something hard and you, you reminded them, whether you knew it or not, you reminded them that they were just going through a season, right? Uh, there, there's there's going to come an end to this. So we don't have time. Solomon, what we read, we read it real fast, but there are 28 ingredients, uh, 14 different pairings. You would not come back to church if we tackled them all today. I'm just going to tackle four, okay? Oblige me for the next few moments as we tackle four of these beautiful utterances from Ecclesiastes. He says there's a time uh, to mourn and a time to dance. Job chapter 5 and verse 7 says this, but man, you can say humankind, is born to trouble just as the sparks fly upward. I added a word or two for your understanding. Job, who knew suffering like nobody's business, he said this. He said, start a fire. This is predictable. Start a fire. Watch the sparks. They're going up. See someone born. Watch them experience trouble. That's how predictable it is. Doesn't do well to fight that, does it? Doesn't do well to turn the other way or to have some ism or schism or philosophy of life where we act like the hard stuff, the trouble, the pain and suffering doesn't exist. Job says, there it is, right there. In fact, with shocking regularity, the Bible, particularly the wisdom literature, has a lot of hard statements, things that you would probably say, if someone uttered them in your small group, you'd be looking for the door. If someone said it in your family, you would look to go for a walk or a drive. I mean, these are things that seem blasphemous, but they're so real. Have you been there in your life? Has it been so raw that you're just letting out the most, uh, the most real of emotions? And God's big enough. He's big enough to hear that. In Psalm 88, look at what the psalmist says. He asks this question. He asks it out of extreme hurt. He says, oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? We all could agree that one of the most beautiful things in life, one of the most basic needs of, a, of an infant, of a little baby. We've got some in the room right now. We're working hard to get a nursing room for, for those of you who will want that in future weeks. But the most basic need 
for an infant when he or she cries is for comfort, security, and love. The, the, the voice, the touch, the face of a parent. When our uh, daughter was a little bitty thing, she would uh, sleep in the next room and she had just the cutest little cry which would often go unattended in the middle of the night. And we would just lay there and listen to her cry. But one of the things that we would do, uh, evidently, when we, when we comforted her, is we would, uh, we would go in and we would say, hold you. Because unlike my boy, she's, she was pretty fickle. She was kind of moody. So she, sometimes you'd go to hold her and she'd go, eh, eh, eh. So we had this thing, hold you? You want, you want daddy, you want mommy, hold you? And there were times when we would lie in the bed in the middle of the night and she would cry out. And then we would hear her comforting herself. She's like, if y'all ain't going to comfort me, I'll just comfort myself here. And she would just say the sweet little phrases, phrases we would use. And I remember one uh, early, early morning in particular, I heard little Haley going, hold you, hold you, hold you, hold you. And there's something about that, right? It's just something beautiful to, to, be, to be noticed, to be heard, and then to be attended to. And then conversely, let's go to polar extremes because Solomon is asking us to accept uh, the polar extremes and everything in between. But on the polar extreme of that is the pain that hopefully none of us know, but just the thought of that abuse or ne neglect, that little infant baby that cries out for, for that security, for that comfort, for that touch, that voice, that feel, and it goes neglected, wholly neglected. There's no one there to embrace that child and to give it what it needs. And that is the rawness of what the psalmist is saying here. God, why are you? I mean, you can do something about this. A parent in the next room can do something about a hungry stomach or a wet diaper or whatever is going on, a, a bump in the night, something uh, uh, fearful, real, or imagined. A parent has the power, wouldn't you agree? A parent has the resources. A parent has the love to be able to do that. But God, why are you, why are you hiding your face from me? We want to keep it real here at Fondren, and I know that we talked a few weeks ago about the dark night of the soul. And for some of you today, you're, you are right now in a season of mourning. And far be it from us to trivialize that. We don't want to create the kind of church where we come in and act like everything is celebratory when it's not. We're, trying to, we're not trying to coach you or manipulate you into some sort of insincere emotion because that will fade in the parking lot when you leave. I've read a lot recently. Um, on this idea of deep mourning and what we uh, have come to know is just a state of depression. And the experts uh, tell us that there's really two. It comes in two basic forms, uh, bipolar disorder and reactive depression. Now, the, for the deep mourners, the, the bipolar disorder is often, it's often biologically driven. And this, is, uh, this uh, type of depression, uh, you experience both the manic... Um, the manic uh, representation of that, and also the depressive. Uh, it can be very high, and it can be very low. But understand what the experts are saying, as I understand it. I'm welcome to, to be corrected or instructed by any experts later. But as I've read it from some people and, and phone, made a phone call this week to a one expert, um, it's biologically driven, bipolar disorder, in, in large part. The second one, reactive depression, uh, is, is singular. It's, there's no highs, it's just uh, it's really low. And this, uh, more times than not, uh, it tends to be tied to your environment, your circumstances, or your upbringing. Now, 
The same experts that I've been reading have discovered, now listen, because I'm going to ask you to guess. There is a group of people in America. And this group of people, have they have significantly less of the second type of depression in their life. So follow me, okay? So uh, they have the same amount, let me just say this, they have the same amount of what's biological, okay? What's chemical and what's happening there renders us uh, helpless in many ways. So not the first kind, but the second kind. There's a group of Americans that have significantly less of this type of reactive depression. The, 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 the depression that's, that's, that tends to be tied to your upbringing, your environment, and your circumstances. Do you follow me? Now render a guess. What would that group of people significantly less? Would it be left-handed people? Vegetarians? Blondes? We know that's not true. Let me tell you, Amish. The Amish. Now I want to go ahead and make my point on this as I've studied this week. I'm not suggesting that we all withdraw and form communes and, and have a good time with horse and buggy races, right? But I do want to suggest to you that when it comes to mourning, the power of community is God's intention. And I've said this before, I want to I want to hear you say it. We, we've had a few Sundays where we just do Q&A and you guys can ask me anything. And I stand up here and mostly I'm saying, I don't know, I don't know. And I try to answer things as best as I can. But I cannot explain suffering. I, I can't tell you why a lot of the bad things happen. But I can tell you that there's a beauty in mourning. And I know some of you could stand up right now and share that story. But I want to, I want to make a couple of points about, about community. The, the stronger sense of community equals less vulnerability to depression. Strongly individualistic and self-oriented, more vulnerable to depression. As a pastor, I do funerals. I'm honored to say with a younger congregation, we do a lot more weddings than we do funerals. But being in the ministry for 20 plus years, I've had my share of funerals. And you always want the kind of funeral where someone, a man or woman, lived fully and lived well and people are there to, to pay a tribute. There's times when people leave unexpectedly. We've, we've been hit by that in our community. And some of you know that very well and come around this family. And God has blessed this family with a larger family that's sharing in their mourning. Look at Job chapter 2 and verses 11 through 13. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namamite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and they wept and they tore their robes and sprinkled the dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Just silence. Just, just to be there in someone's hurt. Paul put it this way in, in Romans 12. You know, that's one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. And Paul says, weep with those who weep. When somebody is mourning, you mourned with them. Paul does not say... Uh, explain, try to explain their hurt away. Paul doesn't say to those who are mourned, give them advice. Paul doesn't say to those who are mourning, uh, straighten them out and tell them what's up. Paul says that we are to mourn with those 
who mourn. The tighter the community that you and I have, the more we'll be able to embrace Solomon's idea that there is a time for mourning. There's also a great time in life for dancing. Aren't you glad? To dance. In the, in the, in the Old Testament, uh, there are festivals and celebrations. Yes, even in the Old Testament where God says, you guys get together and party like rock stars. Party like it's 1999. Uh, get together, dance, and just have a blast. These festivals, these celebrations are not just, listen, they're not just permitted, they're mandated. In other words, some of you are so sour, some of you are so joyless, some of you really need to put it on your calendar. And it's just not naturally in you like it is some people. So put it on your calendar and get together all these regular times a year and let's party. Let's sing and shout and dance and let's have a blast. Do you in your life have room for that kind of dancing, that kind of joy? Where God says, mark it, mark life, remember the moments. It's when the acceptance letter comes in the mail. It's when you get the job promotion or placement. It's when uh, the long-awaited child is finally conceived. It's when the couple says, we can adopt the baby. We've been approved. It's when something really good happens. It's the, the purchase of your first home. It's a, it's a discovery of learning. It's a, it's a character formation that's celebrated when people come around you, like I've seen recently, to celebrate someone's uh, sobriety and to encourage them all the more. There's a time when we need to get together and party. And Solomon and other writers would say, eat good food, drink good drink, and have a lot of laughter. And I would add to that today in 2014, take pictures. I tell young people, take like this may sound unlike the words of a preacher, but I tell the young people especially, take selfies, take lots of pictures because in the future you're going to look back and you're going to like the way you look, right? Trust me, I know this. I was young and good looking one day. But man, mark the celebrations, but above all, when you are dancing, when you're dancing, let it be marked with gratitude. And as you see a God whose fundamental disposition towards you is goodness. There's a time to mourn. And there's a time to dance. He, he says there's also a time to embrace. And a time to refuse that embrace. If you have some people in your life who have proven trustworthy. I hope somebody hears this this morning. If you have somebody or have some people in your life who have proven to be trustworthy, embrace them. Group hug. One-on-one. Embrace them. There's a time for that. A very important time to embrace people who are going in the direction that you are. But if there are some people in your life who have not proved trustworthy, there is a time when you do not embrace them. Push away from the embrace. Some of you need to hear that this morning. There's a time to do that. He goes on to write, there's a time to to keep things and there's a time to throw away. Now, using some modern research and understanding, I know that in the room there's two kinds of people. There are savers and tossers. So I'm just going to get a show of hands. How many of you are savers? Raise your hand. How many of you are tossers? Raise your hand. When we uh, were newlyweds, Susan and I, uh, some of you know, lived in Miami. And one of the 
the cool things is we got to attend through the generosity of a friend named Frank Jimenez and his family. We, we got to attend game seven of the World Series between the Florida Marlins and the Cleveland Indians. Any baseball historians will know that the Florida Marlins won that game in 11 innings. It was a boring game. We sat up in the nosebleed section, but we were there, right? And we were, we were just so excited. And in Miami, in the Latin community, there's just a lot of passion, a lot of people from uh, different countries of origin. And it was, it was just great. I don't want to say anything to offend SEC football fans, of which I am one, but there was just a lot of passion in that stadium and in that community, and we just had a blast. When the game was over, we rode with those friends, remember this, in a convertible, uh, driving on Hialeah and Southwest 8th Street into Little Havana, and we partied and danced and just had a great time, for we were Marlins fans back then, and we just celebrated. And that week, the Miami Herald had a a beautiful full-page deal to commemorate, that's the key word, to commemorate that World Series victory of which we were there, we were a part of. And guess who went through my home office and picked up that newspaper and threw it in the trash which went to the street and to the landfill? She did. (laughs) And for her, what she thought was an unnecessary little knickknack that was cluttering up the home office to me was a collectible. It was a keepsake. It was memorabilia. It was about to be framed. And you know, life is, we've got to make decisions, don't we? We've got to make decisions about what we keep and what we, what we throw away. Now, all of you who, who like to keep things, you, you raised your hands, you've identified yourself. So look, that's good. You probably are sweet people who like to have memories. You probably have in very rich, nurturing relationships in your life. If you like to toss things away, then you, uh, in some ways, are very healthy psychologically. I mean, uh, studies are showing that if you eliminate clutter, there's something really good and really healthy about that. Now, the question is, what in your life, when you read this great work today from Ecclesiastes 3, what do you need to keep? And what do you need to throw away? For some of you, you you need to throw away commitments on your calendar that really don't uh, live in light of your values. For some of you, you need to throw away financial habits that have you living over your means and unable to be generous. Uh, For some of you, you need to throw away that shallow relationship that's bringing you down, that's not building you up. Uh, There's a time when we need to throw away, we we need to move on. I, I know a man, I'm interacting with him pretty regularly. And he um, is just very slowly getting his foot back into the church door. After about, you ready for this? About 50 years of being bitter to a particular church. Now, what's happened in 50 years? We put a man on the moon. We've invented the internet. I told him that just a few weeks ago. Man, a lot's happened in 50 years. What's happened to you? Why are you still hanging on? It's time to move on, don't you think? It's time to to throw away that bitterness. And here's what I want to say to some of our young people. A bad dating relationship doesn't produce a good marriage. Woo, imagine that. I mean, you're getting that for free today, right? I mean, a bad, are you ready? A bad dating relationship doesn't produce a good marriage. There is nothing magical about walking down this aisle. Somebody hear me this morning. And there are things that, that you need to throw away. There are things that you need to keep. How about time with family? 
How about what Jesus said in Matthew 5 about your yes being yes and your no being no? There are things that you need to keep like regular time with God. How about just 15 minutes, 20 minutes a day in your favorite chair with the Bible open and a journal just to listen, just to read, just to pray? And what if you made that commitment and you kept that commitment? There's a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. There's a time to keep things and a time to throw away. And lastly, uh, I want to say what Solomon said. There is a time to be silent and a time to speak up. Now I wonder what God would say to us today, this morning. What would he say to you in your own life? There's a time to be silent. One of my favorite passages is found in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 15. Would love for you to look at it later in its broader context. But God says to stubborn people, he says to them, in returning and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. The next verse says, but you would have none of it. Because we love the loud decibel level. We love the ambient toxic noise in our heads. Do you have a time in your life to be silent? Some of us struggle with what I read a couple weeks ago. We struggle with, uh, with FOMO. Fear of missing out. 70% of Americans, somebody estimates, struggle with FOMO, fear of missing out. So if you get up at 3 a.m. to go to the bathroom, you check Facebook. Because you have what? A fear of missing out. And I'm just going to take a giant leap here. Maybe my logic's not sound. I don't know. But I'm just thinking if there's 70% of us struggling with FOMO, fear of missing out, we probably don't appreciate quiet. We probably don't understand returning and rest is our salvation. And quietness and trust is our strength. I know a friend on the West Coast who several years ago joined a few of his friends. Uh, his life is not like mine. I get that. But I envy and, and admire him for this. But they took months and they got on this beautiful sailboat. And they traveled. They circumvented the globe. 30,000 plus uh, nautical miles. It took them months and months. Pacific Ocean, Indian Ocean, Atlantic Ocean. And it was a time where they were comfortable. They were at peace. And I, I talked to my friend. He said, hey, we didn't really talk a lot with each other. I mean, we're buddies, but there's so much quietness. What would you do? We read our Bibles. We, we journaled. We sat there. We enjoyed the beauty. We spent a lot of time because in dangerous, treacherous water. We, we dealt with the maintenance and operation of the boat. But we all read and we, we wrote and we prayed and it was a very rich time. Now, nobody in here probably has the resources or the inclination to uh, circumnavigate the globe, right? Nobody? I would love for you guys to give that to me as a sabbatical when I hit seven years at Fondren Church. Just a suggestion uh, to any elders in the room. But uh, look, for, for, for you, for me, maybe it's 30 minutes or 30 days of fasting from social media. Maybe it's that 15 or 20 minutes in our favorite chair. But to be silent, and that's what happens, I have found in my life, that there is returning and there is rest and salvation. There's, when there is quietness and there's trust, there is that strength that God gives me. And you begin to know, I'll be honest with you, when I haven't spent time with God, when I haven't been silent listening for his voice and listening to the valuable counsel of other people around me, uh, I'm the first to know and the second people to know it's my family. 
And then God forbid, some of you know when I'm spiritually dry and I'm not listening. There's a time to be silent. But there is a time, the scripture tells us, to speak up. I've I've shared with you before, Matthew 7, Jesus' beautiful teaching. Don't judge lest you be judged. Jesus uses humor saying, you're so concerned about the speck in your brother's eye that you don't even see the plank in your own. we got to be careful. Wouldn't you agree? That's one of the most popular verses in the world today. We need to be careful. I I wholeheartedly um, believe what Jesus is teaching there. But some of us use that, I don't want to judge anybody, as an excuse. But Solomon is saying, and God's wisdom is laid forth to us today, there is a time, listen church, there is a time when you need to speak up. There is a time when collectively we as a church need to speak up. We're just three years old and God is building this into us. And let me just say, primarily through the conscious and through the voice of our younger people in this church. But Micah 6.8, the word says to us that the one good thing that God requires of us, it's threefold is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And the church, we are called, this needs to resonate with us, we are called to speak up for those who have no voice. We need to stop being cowardly. We need to seek that justice. As the prophet Isaiah said, as Martin Luther King later wrote about from his letter from a Birmingham prison, justice needs to roll like a mighty river. And justice for the church is for us to care for the poor and the orphans and widows to wed justice and compassion as we walk humbly. In other words, not for our glory, not for our namesake, but for the embetterment of people to bring heaven to earth, the kingdom of heaven down to earth. We need to speak up. Church, what is God saying to us? What what good are we doing? What benevolence awaits us? Thousands and thousands of dollars are devoted annually in our budget to, to, to meeting needs and caring for people and establishing justice. But what does God have for us? What's in our future? What, what awaits us? In a more, more personal, pertinent t- type of way, I think, I think Ecclesiastes here gives us his invitation. It piques us to, maybe pokes us to think, We need to speak up. We we need to share with somebody. And the most loving thing you can do at times for somebody is to tell them something they need to hear. And by not telling them, you are acting cowardly. See, preacher, you're stepping on my toes. Well, I know because I have been a coward and I have cowardly tendencies myself. What if I offend you? What if I don't defend somebody? What if I don't share something? And I I think that if we're a better community, we're having those type of conversations where we could turn, we got to have a platform in our life, in their life, I know that, but we can look at them and say, man, I'm not trying to judge you, but if you go down that path, there's a price tag that you're going to have to pay, and you don't see it now. But I'm warning you, I'm telling you, I'm I know I could risk this this relationship. I know you, you leave today mad at me, but you need to hear this. There's a time, there's a time to speak up. As we begin to close this morning, I want to say to you, I just want you to ask a few questions. Namely, what what season of life are you in? Now, what I've noticed is that it's hard to be present in the present. Have you noticed that? Man, I I turned up my, my car radio, my truck radio yesterday when... That anthem from Brian Adams, the theologian Brian Adams, came on the radio, right? 
of the summer of 69. I bought my first real six string, right? I got it at the five and dime. I played it till my fingers bled. You know that song? It was, it was the, those were the best days of my life. But what happened to Brian Adams in the summer of 69? Jimmy quit and Jody got married, right? Y'all know this? I mean, it's just easy for us to, to look back. I turned that up in my car, and I feel like all of us have that. We, all of us kind of have a, man, the summer of 69. And we just sing it, and we think, man, I just, you know, I like this. This ain't bad, but, man, I just want to go there. I want to go back. I liked that season. But I'm telling you, you nostalgic people, even in that season, it was good. And you played that guitar, and you got it at the five and dime. Five and dime, and there was a five and dime. That's pretty cool. But, man, Jimmy quit, and Jody got married. It happened. And I think Solomon is saying in the midst of these polar extremes, there's all this stuff that happens in the middle. And it's just hard to be present in the present. We, we want to look back. And I want to close by, this is kind of a, a stretch here, but go from Ecclesiastes 3 all the way to Revelation 3, just real quick. I know your works. By the way, these are the verses that uh, serve as prologue to Jesus, the famous verse in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to sup with him. I'll have fellowship with him. Uh, th- there's a, this passage, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you, uh, circle that, an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, that phrase that you circled, open door. Now, with the Greeks, they were, they were big with grammar. Some of you seminarians, you know what I'm talking about here. But in the, in the Greek usage, word usage, there's a, an aorist tense. And the aorist tense is just, hey, uh, something happened in the past and it happened. Um, and then there is this, uh, this perfect tense. And in the perfect tense, something happened in the past, but it, it has present effects. And then there is the... There is the Present perfect par- passive participle. Present per- passive participle. Uh, isn't that exciting? Fun to say. Peter Piper picked up, you know, whatever. And that's, what, that's what's used with this open door. In other words, let me say this because I've lost a lot of you, I know. But what the scripture is saying is there's not just an open door, okay? There is an opened door. Now, in literature, doors symbolize a, a lot of things. Uh, doors can symbolize safety, right? Shut, lock, double bolt, step back, right? Safety. Uh, uh, doors can symbolize hiddenness because nobody knows what goes on behind closed doors. And doors can symbolize rejection. I, I asked a friend this week, man, is it, how, I mean, y'all, is it over? Door shut, man, door shut and locked, it's over. She shut it in my face. And then there's a, a door used as sort of a refuge. Uh, people, some of you know this, a mom with little children. She has a favorite room in the house. What is it? It's the bathroom. It's the door she can shut and lock, and those little ones have to leave her alone. But here in Revelation 3, it's none of those doors. This opened door is a divinely open door. How many this weekend yelled at your kids? Or grandkids, shut the door. Which one of you kids left the door open? A lot of times when a door is open, we don't like it, and we want to find the culprit. But this is, this is John exiled on the island of Patmos is saying to us, this is an opened door. It's a divinely opened door. There are unlimited, boundless opportunities when God opens a door. 
If you're in a small group, you'll have a chance. Uh, if you're doing the sermon series, to even talk about that tonight or Wednesday night or whenever your group meets. But I wonder if some of you are struggling and you're staying stuck in a season that God is saying move on from. Get out of this season. Move on. I've opened a door for you. And I pray that we would be a people who realizes all the actions and all the emotions of being human. That God, even though at times it doesn't seem like it, that God is sovereign over all of that. Do you know I've built my life on that? I stake my life on that. I believe it. In the midst of some of this, I want to resist it. And I can't explain it. I'm telling you, I can't explain it all. No one can. But what season are you in? Are you learning the lessons God has for you in that season? And are you willing to wait? Because maybe the door has yet to be opened. Let's pray. Everything about God, everything about our lives and this, this world screams for our attention. And it's, when we get down to it, it's really not a funny thing to struggle with our fear of missing out. But in way too many ways, we're missing out on, we're afraid of missing out on things that don't matter, that can be toxic that can be loud and that can drown out what you desire to be a rest and a returning a quietness and a strength Lord in this room there's a complexity of emotions and variety of situations there's manic and there's depressive there's highs and lows Lord, you're the great physician and you can bring healing and help to every, every heart here today. We give you these few moments, Lord. We're going we're gonna to offer you a, a song of praise and observe a time of prayer. Lord, I pray you give people the courage to be prayed for and give people the courage uh, to take something from today, from Ecclesiastes 3. Beyond the, the messenger, there is the message, and the message is so beautiful. You've created life, and you go on to say in Ecclesiastes 3, for you have set eternity in every heart. And God, I pray that all of us would be reminded or instructed today that every season ends in this life. But there is one great season that never ends. God, give us, give us that perspective on eternity. You've already placed it in our hearts. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Would you stand and we're gonna we're gonna sing and we'd love for you to if you'd give us an opportunity this morning. A few of us are down front. We'd love to pray for you. 
any direction, any decision in your life, a burden you carry, a burden for another, just wisdom, whatever it might be, we would love for you to care very little, if nothing at all, about what people might think around you and just have the courage to take a few steps to to be prayed for. We want to be a praying church and we want to use this time, these few moments, to honor him as we do. Let's sing and worship.